to 1.37 p.m.'s Live from the Bar Cart. A look into the style, culture, strength, and grind of the modern-day man. Alex Benayan, welcome to the 1.37 p.m. Live from the Bar Cart podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm your host, Brian Anthony Hernandez, and you, of course, are the author of the brilliant book, The Third Door, as well as an alumnus of the Forbes 30 Under 30 and Business Insider's most powerful people under 30. Congratulations on all your success and the release of this book. Thank you. All right. In this book, you talk to a lot of famous faces such as Bill Gates, Steven Spielberg, and Larry David about how they launched their careers Um, because that was just a gap in, I guess, you know, libraries and bookstores where you couldn't find books about that process in these famous people's careers. Um, I want to start with the last subject that you mentioned in your book, which is Lady Gaga. Mm. Why did you want to end your seven-year-long project with her as the end? So with Gaga, it took years to finally get that interview. And what I couldn't have known at the time is that the experience with Lady Gaga was actually the perfect ending of this journey, almost as if it was a present with a perfect bow on top. Because I had gone in thinking I was gonna interview her, because mm-hmm. I spent years trying to get the interview, and when I finally got to her, we were gonna do the interview at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. And she was gonna be there for four or five days because she was the keynote speaker for the music festival, she was doing a concert, she was filming Jimmy Kimmel Live, so she was sort of there for the whole week, and the idea was I would just find an hour at some point that week to do the interview, because her team had finally approved it. When I got there, though, she was not in the place to do an interview. She was in tears, mm. terrified that she was about to have the worst week of her career. And what ended up happening is I went in looking for answers from Gaga and what ended up happening is I ended up spending the four days with her and her team and in many ways taking all the lessons I learned on my journey the past seven years and using them to help her in this critical moment. And when you say her team, you were specifically hanging out pretty uh, in depth with uh, Matt. Yeah, Matt Mickelson. Matt Mickelson. And what's his relationship for people who aren't? familiar with him. So Lady Gaga has a social network called littlemonsters.com and Mag created Little Monsters with Gaga. You mentioned that Gaga was crying around the time when you met Mm -hmm. her and to help her, Matt gave you a project uh, related to South by Southwest like you mentioned um, because she needed some inspiration for her keynote. Uh, What did you end up sending her? So what had happened is that so Gaga was giving the keynote at South by Southwest music and This was the first time she was really in the public spotlight since Art Pop came out. You know, her previous album had sold, I think, a million copies almost out the gate. Art Pop didn't do a quarter of that. And got still went number one though. Still went number one. Pretty cool, but right? Isn't it crazy though? Isn't it crazy the bar people have for her? In some ways, it's a compliment, but in other ways, it's ludicrous that they're like, "Oh, it wasn't a success when it was a quarter million copies," but. That's what happened. And the press just, you know, ripped the album into shreds. So this was her first time really stepping into the spotlight. And what ended up happening is Gaga and her team were having trouble putting words 
explaining what RPOP was. And I, I, I can actually really resonate with what that's like. You know, when you're in the thick of a problem, you can't really see. You're sort of in this cloud. And I, as this outsider, you know, before I go into any interview with someone, I'm spending weeks, if not months, just deep in research. Mm-hmm. Like with the interview with Bill Gates, I spent three months reading everything I could about him. And with Gaga, I did the same thing. I read her biography. I read every article about her. And I studied all her lyrics. So when I went in there, I knew art pop like the back of my hand. And I was able to take the advice I got from Maya Angelou and Quincy Jones and Richard Saul Warman, the founder of TED, and tie it all together in a way that really captured the soul of who Gaga was. And the crazy part is when I helped write that speech, she was in tears saying that no one's been able to capture her essence in words until now. That's so beautiful. You also, aside from sending her those brilliant talking points, you sent her a special video, uh, oh, Steve, yeah. the Steve Jobs Think mm-hmm. Different video. Exactly. Uh, and, and she loved that. Yeah, she, again, she cried then too. Because for me, I knew that, because, you know, for these seven years, I've sort of immersed myself into the lives of the most successful people. And, of course, Steve Jobs was one of the people I really immersed myself in. And I knew there was this one video where he talks about the value of knowing who you are. And only when you know who you are can you communicate yourself to your consumers. So what I was trying to show Gaga is that, you know, it's not about convincing people that our pop is good. It's not about explaining it. It's about going back to who her soul is, you know, what her essence is. And no one was able to explain that better than Steve Jobs. So that's why I sent that YouTube video. That's awesome. And let's go back to what Steve Jobs want, wanted um, to do with that video, which is discover who you are before mm. anyone else can. Who are you in this moment, Alex? How would you describe yourself to the world? Mm. You know, the first thing I thought about was my family. So my parents came to America as refugees. They lived in Iran. And because they were Jewish during the Iranian revolution, they had to flee for their lives and they came to America. And when I was born, like all Jewish immigrants, you know, I came out of the womb, my mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. And you were supposed to be the doctor. I, it wasn't even supposed to be a doctor. It was, I am going and, to be a doctor. Yeah. You know, I went to pre-med summer camp as a kid. I wore scrubs to school for Halloween. And by the time I got to college, I was the pre-med of pre-meds. But very quickly, I began to wonder, you know, whether I was on my path. I remember just a towering stack of biology books on the desk, you know, feeling like they were sucking the life out of me. Mm -hmm. This was at the University of Southern California. Exactly. I was at USC, and I was just spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up the ceiling. And at first I assumed I was being lazy, but then I began to wonder, you know, whether I was on my path or if I was on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So I'm going through the what do I want to do with my life crisis. And I don't know if you've gone through the what do I want to oh, do yeah. with my life crisis. I am also a college dropout, so I feel okay, it. Okay, <laughs> so you feel me, right? And it's all you can think about. Yep. And not only did I not know what I wanted to do with my life, I had no idea how all the people I looked up to, how they did it. 
How did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room mm-hmm. when nobody knew his name? How did Spielberg become the youngest studio director in Hollywood history when he was rejected from film school? You know, these are things they don't teach you in class. Mm-hmm. So I very naively thought, you know, there had to be a book with the answers. So, you know, I just went on Amazon and just started ripping through business books and biographies. And, you know, that's when I first came across Gary. And yeah. eventually, though, I was left empty handed because there wasn't a single book that, you know, covered people from all industries that really focused on when they were just starting out, when nobody would take their calls, no one would take their meetings. How did they find a way to break through? You know, this is what Forbes doesn't talk about. Yeah, the untold story. Exactly. And, you know, it wasn't even about an age in people's lives. It was about a stage mm-hmm. when you're just on your hustle, just trying to get your foot in the door. So I just assumed very naively, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? Exactly. You know, I thought I'd call up Bill Gates, <laughs> interview him, interview everybody else. I thought it would be done in a few months. That, I assumed, would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund this journey. You know, I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. Mm-hmm. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. That's funny. So two nights before final exams, I was in the library doing what everyone does in the library right before finals. Studying, right? I was on Facebook. Oh. <laughs> I love that. So I'm on Facebook and... I see someone posting free tickets to the price is right. And the game show, because I was in LA, was filming a few miles from campus. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this dream? You know, not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. I had never seen a full episode of the show before. Oh. So... And I told myself it was a dumb idea and not think about it. But I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where an idea just keeps clawing itself back into your mind. Oh, yeah. So I just t- proved to myself it was a bad idea. You know, I was sitting at the small wooden table in the corner of the library. And I opened up this spiral notebook and I wrote the worst and best case scenarios. <laughs> and you know, worst case scenarios. Fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me, no, mom kills me, you know, there's 20 (laughs) cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe, win enough money to fund this dream. And it was almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night, I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the price is right. All right. And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy. And I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling a sailboat. And that's how I funded the book. Wow. That is probably the most unconventional way I've (laughs) seen someone fund their dream. (laughs) But it worked. A lot easier than VC money. I'll tell you that, man. Did you ever tell the person you sold the boat to what you did with the money? (laughs) I don't think so, because I was just like, I was just trying to like get away before he changed his mind. Yeah. I was just like, the second I got my check, I was like, thank you, and I was like running out the door. <laughs> oh man, I remember I remember the first time I held the check for the sailboat too. 
was the most money I'd ever held in my hand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had my mom take a picture of me oh, holding wow. it. <laughs> and she didn't think you were crazy for doing the whole Price is Right thing? It's because I won. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my parents are... They're happy if you're doing well. The second things start getting shaky, you know, they are <laughs> screaming at the top of their lungs. Wait, what do they think of the book? So... My, you know, my mom in the beginning was the, in some ways, you know, the arch nemesis of this book because her biggest dream was for me to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And the only way I could achieve this dream was if I stopped being pre-med and worked full time writing this book. So she wasn't excited about it that way in the beginning. But in many ways, this book has been a testament to the unconditional love of a parent. And my mom not only supports the book, she's like the number one supporter. And, you know, I couldn't couldn't be more grateful for her. Awesome. If you could tell her something right now um, about just kind of what her love has meant over the past seven years, because it's mm. kind of a scary feeling to know that, you know, if I don't do this right, mom might be a little bummed. She's always going to love you, but like might be a little bummed about it. Mm. You know, my mom has taught me that if you care about something enough, you'll always figure it out. And, you know, she taught me that not even in the context of business. She taught me that within our family. We've had a really hard past few years with you know, family-wise. My my dad passed away a year ago. My grandpa passed away a month ago. My grandma passed away two weeks ago. And my mom, you know, has just been through like a kind of hell that's hard to explain. And at the same time, she is the most resilient person I know. And who I am and who my sisters are is a testament to who she is. That's beautiful. She's the rock. She's been the rock. She's the rock. She's the water. She's the air. She's the tree. Like she, growing up, she was the rock. You know, we. she seemed like this immovable force in our life. And as things have gotten harder in life, she showed us how flexible she is and how how much she can evolve and grow to. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, being so open with us. Of course. Aside from your mother being a fan of the book, there are a lot of people reading it right now, um, including singer-songwriter Mike Posner, Mm -hmm. who actually wrote um, that it's one of the best books of the year. What's some of the other cool feedback that you're getting that's kind of taking you aback? Hmm. Oh, you want to know a great one? Oh, there's two that have really meant a lot. So, you know, I'm super grateful for what Mike Posner said. Two of the people in the book gave feedback that really just put the biggest smile on my face. One was Steve Wozniak. I got an email from him saying, no one has ever captured his essence better. And he said, the part of him that I captured was the part most people miss. What part was that? So that was 
tremendously satisfying. It was, well, the whole chapter itself is called Redefining Success. And the whole premise of the chapter is, you know, the opening question is, who's more successful, Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak? And the ending realization that I take away from it, I think is what Woz was referring to. All right. And yeah, if we have time, I'm happy to share the stories. It was just really profound that he, you know, I didn't, this is the thing. I didn't write the book for Woz. I wrote the book for the reader. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he loved it and that he felt it was an honest and true embodiment of who he is was just the ultimate, you know, pat on the back. Right? I mean, Steve is a legend, so that's... The was. Yeah, the was. Um, another person who I loved reading in your book, uh, Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. being a Nebraska kid. Um, Where in Nebraska are you from? I'm from a small town called Scotts Bluff, so it's basically okay. Wyoming. Um, really small, but I went to college at the University of Nebraska before Great. dropping out in my senior year. Just so like I, Buffett did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the cool thing about your story with him is you hand wrote letters <laughs> to him and he hand wrote you back yeah before but they were rejection letters yeah um nice ones but that's still still awesome until you finally got invited to hang out with him so with buffett what ended up happening is i went on this eight month quest mm-hmm. trying to get an interview and you know like you said i would hand write these long letters to him and he would write these, you know, responses back. You know, I would write two pages. He would write two sentences. But still, he was writing back. So I was super stoked. And I was just like, all right, I am just going to keep at it until he says yes. Eight months later. And you have to understand, I am writing letters to him week after week. I'm calling his assistant every Wednesday morning. By month three, shit's getting really hard. Yeah. By month six, it gets really fucking depressing. When you're just waking up at 6 a.m. and just getting your ass handed to you left and right. And finally, at the end of eight months of just getting pounded with rejections, Buffett's assistant Debbie was like, hey, Alex, look, I know Warren. And I know when he says no, the answer is no. So how about this? How about as my guest, you come to the shareholders meeting? And I was like, wow, like, thank you so much. She's like, look, you can even bring friends. And I was like, wow, can I bring five? She's like, sure. So she sends me six tickets. And when I was on the phone with her, I was like, hey, Debbie, isn't it true that at the shareholders meeting, people can ask questions during the Q&A? And she's like, Alex, Alex, (laughs) Alex, I know what you're trying to do. And it's impossible. There's 30,000 people there and only 30 get asked questions. So it's one in a thousand odds. I wouldn't get your hopes up, Alex. You already defied the odds with the person, right? (laughs) So the luck was on your side. Exactly. What Debbie didn't know is I'm the king of hopes up. (laughs) So I and my best friends, these are like my boys, you know, we grew up together. We fly out to Omaha, you know, we get one room in the Motel 6 Mm -hmm. and We get to Buffett shareholders meeting at four o'clock in the morning. We're waiting in this blistering cold. 
the doors open, and thousands of people are running in. You know, leather briefcases are in the air, ties, khakis. It's like a business casual running of the bulls. And thousands of people are running into the stadium. And we end up, you know, we get seats in the front. And we have a couple hours until it starts. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go figure out how this lottery system works. Because the Q&A was a straight lottery. One in a thousand odds. Wow. But I just have this notion that in life, although, you know, the system likes you to think that it's all luck, there's actually a process to it. And if you just, you know, do enough research and ask the right questions, you'll find how it works. So just with that theory, we start running around and sure enough, we find a loophole to Buffett's lottery. And although the odds were one in a thousand, out of the six of us, four got winning lottery tickets. Wait, what was the loophole? <laughs> How did this work? What? Okay, so this is a loophole. Buffett's lottery system is, okay, so there's 30,000 people there mm-hmm. in this big basketball arena. But he can't have one lottery station or else there'll be a line of 30,000 people. Yeah. So he has to make, I think he has like 12 different tables set up equally spaced around the arena. Now, in theory, the lottery is just divided by 12 into 12 mini lotteries. But what we found out after talking to like, you know, 50 people who work there, 49 told us to get lost, but one person really resonated with the story. And she gave us an insight. She said, the lotteries in the, you know, the ground floor towards the stage, everyone sitting on the ground floor near the stage is entering that lottery. Because those are people who have been in line since 4 a.m. who are the biggest Buffett fans. She was like, you know, station eight, station 12, next to the bathroom on the fourth floor. She's like, no one's entering that one because all the people who are sitting on the fourth floor don't want any attention. Like they don't want to be on CNBC, you know? And so the odds are extremely tilted. So if you're entering the lottery on the first floor in station one, it's not a one in a thousand. It's probably one in five thousand, one in ten thousand. And that's how you got four spots. Four of the how many? Four of I think like thirty questions. That's yeah, it's amazing. The loophole right there, <laughs> which that loophole is basically it, like it's like the definition of your book, the, the the third door. You you found the third door into this lottery. Um, but how do you describe the third door to people when they ask you right away? So for the past seven years. What I've realized is that every single one of these people who I interviewed, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Bill Gates who grew up in Seattle or Maya Angelou who grew up in Stamps, Arkansas, they all treat life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me, because I was 21 at the time, is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. There's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. And then there's the second door, you know, the VIP entrance where the billionaires and celebrities go through. 
And for some reason, school and society have this way of making you feel like those are the only two ways in. You're either born into it or you wait your turn like everybody else. But what I've learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you have to jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. <laughs> there's always a way in. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. That's super cool. Actually, when you met Lady Gaga, you before the whole incident with her crying on the phone, you met her at a club, coincidentally, <laughs> and uh, they weren't going to let you in because she already arrived. They didn't want to let more people yeah. in, but you guys found a way. Yeah, there was. I remember there was you know, police outside the club, and there were barricades and broken beer bottles, and in some ways, that was the third door moment. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing all the stories about your book. Um, I know it just came out a month ago, but what's next for you? What's what's life after this book? You know, there's this really cool story that I that I heard during my research. And you know, it touched me in a really profound way. And it's the story of a and, I, and the weird thing is I can't remember where I heard this story, but I'll never forget it. It's the story of a teacher who is teaching at a, you know, she's doing Teach for America. She's teaching at this school in Baltimore in a really rough part of town and a really tough school. And she's teaching like third grade. And she decides that, you know, these kids need some inspiration. So she's like, all right, guys, today, instead of math, we're, we're all going to draw pictures of our biggest dream of what we want to be when we grow up. So she passes out sheets of paper and crayons and you know all the kids start drawing pictures except for this one little boy sitting in the back of the class and his face is pretty sad and about halfway through the lesson his eyes light up and he starts drawing and you know all the kids hand it in at the end and when they leave the teacher starts going through the drawings and she sees that the little boy drew a picture of a pizza delivery man the teacher was concerned, so she called the mother that night. But the mother wasn't surprised. The mother said that the only male figure in his life who's not in jail or on drugs is his uncle who's a pizza delivery man. Wow. And what that story taught me is that young people will always reach for the highest branch they think is possible. So it's our job, whether it's schools or families or people creating media and content, mm -hmm. to illuminate more branches. And that's my mission moving forward. That's awesome. Giving voices to different professions, different faces. I love that. 100%, man. I love that. All right. So that's what's next for you. Brilliant goal. Who's next? Like, I want to know who is inspiring you, either like in a similar field as yours or just like maybe in music, people you're listening to or other maybe podcast hosts or things like that. Hmm. There's a bunch. So music I'm listening to. There's a band that is the most. So there's some bands 
that you know you love their music and then you go to a concert and they're just like standing on stage mm. and it's like the biggest letdown. This is the opposite. This band, it's called Magic Giant. Okay. And they are unbelievable. You go to their concerts and it's like a combination of like dance therapy. And it's it's like how they play, like it's even hard to describe. It's like pop, but folk and dance. Like it's the most fun music, okay. but also with the deepest lyrics. And they're just my favorite band right now. And they're brand new. They just put out their first album. They played like Coachella. They're unbelievable. Magic Giant. Magic Giant. Yeah, check them out after that. The story you just told just reminds me of Walk the Moon. Their energy on stage mm. is similar in that you just yeah. like want to listen to them more because of their stage presence. Yeah, it, they're one of those, Magic Giant's one of those bands that everyone who sees them at a show becomes an instant fan. Like it's impossible to not fall in love with them. Um, so I'm, I'm loving them right now. Um, in the business world, who's really rocking it? I have a friend who's been, he's super young, he's also in his 20s like I am. And he actually doesn't even do it full-time. His full-time job, he works at Google. But his part-time hustle, you know, very much in line with what you guys are doing here, yeah. his, his side hustle is this thing called Every Vowel. And he draws, you know, little cartoons, little doodles, each with like a different business lesson. And his name is um, John, and he's just, first of all, he's just such a good guy, and he's just on it. He's just honest hustle. He's speaking wherever he can. He's putting out content and he's just doing it in such a kind, generous way. He's playing the long game. And I think, you know, in five to 10 years, everyone will, you know, have read his books and seen his posts. And he's just doing, he just has this long vision and he's doing it in a really patient, generous way. So I think he's going to win in the long term. This is John Everyvel. John at Everyvel. Yeah. His, uh, it's called Every Vowel. Every Vowel. Awesome. Check that out. Too. He's really. I'll check yeah, it out while guy. listening to Magic Chat. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Man. All right, here at 1:37 p.m., we're also doing this amazing Instagram series where we highlight great females in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it's called hashtag My Female Role Model. Ooh, I love that. Um, who's your female role model? Oh. So my instincts are to say, you know, my mom and my sisters. Mm -hmm. But I also think of someone in the business world who I really am loving. Um. Two of my friends, and they're actually identical twins, are doing incredible things. So they're the Agarwal twins. So Mickey Agarwal and Rada Agarwal. And Agarwal is A-G-R-A-W-A-L. Got it. Mickey and Rada. And Mickey is M-I-K-I. Rada started a sensation called Daybreaker. Which is an early, have you been a daybreaker before? I haven't, but some of my friends have, and it looks amazing. It's crazy. They'll, like here in New York, they'll take a thousand person cruise ship, and it is sold out for a 6 a.m. morning dance party. And it's just the craziest party ever, and it's completely sober, no drugs, no alcohol, mm -hmm. and people are just going bananas. Yeah, the photos look like a rave, but it's at 6 a.m. Yeah, and it's so just nice. like, you know, coffee and kombucha. <laughs> So Rada did start a daybreaker. Mickey wrote the book Do Cool Shit. She has a new book coming out called Disrupt Her. And Mickey's just this badass entrepreneur. Um, and I really love them. I also 
There's so many. I love, oh man, I have a friend of mine who is, her name is Maya Watson. Watson is W-A-T-S-O-N, Maya Watson. And she is the director of digital marketing at Netflix for North America, Australia, South America. Like like every month her job title changes because she just (laughs) keeps growing and growing her, her regions. But she's super badass. She used to be head of digital at Oprah Winfrey Network. And she is, you know, her Instagram feed is super inspiring. So I love her a lot too. Awesome. I think she reviewed your book, right? She did. I saw her review on it. All right. Yeah. My little uh, photographic memory coming along right now. (laughs) That was impressive, man. (laughs) All right. So Alex, how did you decide who to pursue for this book, who to interview? And was there a common thread among them after you actually nailed them all down? So when I, you know, when I finally won the prices right and I had the money from the sailboat, my first problem was, you know, who am I going to interview? Because, you know, there's the Forbes 100 list of mm-hmm. successful people, but I don't really believe in an algorithm. So I didn't know what to do. So I called my best friends and I told them to all come over one night. You know, I'm 18 years old. And I asked my friends, guys, if we could create our dream university, who would be our professors? And that made it really easy. You know, Bill Gates would teach business. Mm-hmm. Maya Angelou poetry, Lady Gaga music, Jane Goodall science. You know, Larry King would teach broadcasting, Warren Buffett finance, Spielberg film. So that really became the original list that became the treasure map for this journey. And when I first started out, I was incredibly scared. And I've just always also been a scared kid my whole life. Like I had a nightlight until I was 12. You know, I was just always, I just grew up with a lot but of this fear. this was such an ambitious project for, you were 19 when you started. Right? I was 18. 18, so yeah, brave. Yeah, so, you know, but I was terrified. Mm-hmm. And I just was so confused how all these people like Bill Gates were so fearless. Zuck must, must have been so fearless. Mm-hmm. But as I started doing my research and doing my interviews... I realized every single person who I was interviewing and who I was researching was tremendously scared in the beginning. So none of them were fearless. Instead, they were courageous. And the difference is critical. Fearlessness is jumping off of the cliff and not thinking about it. You know, that's idiotic. Yeah. But courage, on the other hand, is acknowledging your fear, analyzing the consequences, and deciding you still care so much about it, you're gonna take one thoughtful step forward anyway. Amazing, who was your favorite courageous story out of all of them? Hmm. That's like picking your favorite child. That was a <laughs> every parent, look, every parent has a favorite child. <laughs> all right, every- <laughs> I hope it's me. <laughs> look, if it's you, you know it's you. <laughs> So who, you know, there's so many stories of courage and, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Maya Angelou is about courage. She says, courage is the most important trait because without courage, you can't use any of the others. Mm. You can't use any of the other traits. And I think she's hundred percent right. You know, even Jeff Bezos What he talks about is that 
It's the moments of radical courage that change our lives the most. And, you know, just all across business, all across entertainment, you, you'll be hard-pressed to find a story that doesn't have a, a moment or two of just jaw-dropping courage. You know, Howard Schultz, who's, you know, CEO of Starbucks, he, what people don't know is he actually didn't start Starbucks. Starbucks was this little coffee store and not a coffee shop, it was a coffee store. It sold coffee beans. That's it. Wow. They didn't make any coffee in the store. And Howard, you know, he grew up in the projects here in New York. By age 30, he worked his way up to being an executive at a, like a home appliance company. And, you know, just on his radar, he saw that this coffee shop in Seattle was buying a lot of coffee makers. So he like flew to Seattle to go visit he was just blown away by the passion of these coffee roasters and the story of the coffee beans. And he's like, this is like, this is life. And, you know, he was married. He had a really nice job here in New York. He was an executive at a big company. And the thought of throwing that all away, especially, you know, for a kid growing up in mm -hmm in the you know, situations he grew up in, all for a small coffee company that no one's heard of. That's scary. That change is scary. Change it's, is scary. It, you know, terrifying. But the fact that he did it, even though he was terrified, is what changed his life. The courage that made him successful. Yeah, and there's just story after story after story. You know, I could just yeah. throw down a hundred right now. They all took that courage and took that one scary step forward anyway. I got a good idea for people listening. To hear more stories of those courageous this go get the book. <laughs> I go love book. that. <laughs> that is a great idea. All right. Well, thanks so much for stopping by 1.37 p.m. live from the Barker. I feel like we have to go check out Daybreaker one of these days. Definitely. Um, one of these mornings, early mornings. So <laughs> I'll bring the coffee. You bring the fun. <laughs> All right. Thanks, that Alex. Sounds great, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. This is 1.37 p.m. If you want to own the future, start this minute. Live from the Barkhart is a Gallery Media production.